So you would make your booking and then you would let us know what you want. And then on the day, you come with your containers and we will top them up. There are more people who are like, you know, I know plastic's bad, but I'm not really going to do anything about it unless it's made ultra convenient. That's the audience, is those people. Just making it easier for people to go plastic free, because I myself admittedly didn't lead a plastic free lifestyle or a zero waste lifestyle before starting this business. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Padia Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Ella Schoen, founder of Top Up Truck mobile zero waste shop. Welcome, Ella. She joins us from the borough of Hackney in London. Welcome, Ella Schoen. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. So in the early 50s was when one of the first supermarkets was started in UK and US, a few years after the World War. Mm-hmm. And with that came a lot of problems of packaging, of choice. When I grew up, we would go to the neighborhood grocery store. We would buy our grains and rice and tea. And he would just scoop it up from his sack of bulk goods and pack it in a little brown paper bag. And he would give it to us. Mm -hmm. Things have changed so much. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, um, as you say, yeah, with the advent of supermarkets, when you say kind of problem of choice, yeah, we're totally overwhelmed with choice when we go into a supermarket. And something to do with consumerism at large, we sort of have everything at our fingertips as and when we want it. And there's ridiculous amounts of packaging. And yeah, and I guess um, makes you wonder how much of that is necessary. And the reason why these things came about is we want to keep the price of food reasonable. So we scaled up production, optimized distribution, and a portion of the income that a person spends on their food has remained fairly constant, at least in America, or in fact, maybe even dropped as a percent of their monthly income. Yeah, I've never actually looked into that. That's very interesting. So the spend as a percentage of income on food has reduced over the years. But obviously, sort of with kind of mass production and sort of packaging and things like that, the quality of food has obviously dropped and obviously a decline in the kind of sustainability of the food that we're eating. The rise of supermarkets has meant that people actually expect food at a sort of unreasonable cost. You know, there's farmers whose sort of margins are squeezed so much. People have come to expect to have a wide variety of food at in any season at a you know an unreasonably low price but the expectation means there's always going to be issues with the supply chain when you have food at that low cost because obviously the farmers are squeezed in terms of their margin and in terms of you know what they can make by the supermarkets when they're buying stuff in, in giant quantities they drive the prices right down and then actually you get something that's produced naturally and fairly and organically and the cost seems unreasonably high the nuts and bolts of it was that the cost of cheap products, when you look at true cost, is actually a lot higher because of the lack of welfare in the supply chain, damage to the environment in terms of there being unfair pay in the supply chain. But don't get me wrong, plastics have a benefit. Mm-hmm. 
It provides us hygiene, right? Because it has to be on the shelf. Like, especially in times of pandemic, stores which had bulk goods that you could self-serve and put in a bag yourself, got rid of it, and in fact started packing in one pound or two pound bags and leaving it Mm -hmm. in place of where they had the bulk goods. So there are advantages to plastic so that we don't fall ill, we don't get bacteria in it or we don't get viruses people coughing on it or putting their hands in it the reason why plastic has become so prolifically used in the food industry is because it is so well designed you know for keeping the nasties out for extending life of food it is lightweight it is cheap and it's very much sort of have a lot of benefits in terms of like food safety and hygiene besides even just food safety and hygiene i'm assured of the weight right? When it says one pound and it's packed in a factory or in the store, I know it's a pound. I know what brand I'm getting. So there are many, many advantages. Yeah. In terms of kind of like labeling, in terms of, um, I guess there's been a big rise in the last, um, how many years of, yeah, consumers kind of want to know, they want to know the nutritionals, they want to know the the weight, um, they want to know the shelf life, they want to know, and, you know, trading standards have, have got a lot higher, sort of necessitating in a lot of contexts that everything has all of that information on the packet. So how do you think we are using the plastic in the wrong way? What is wrong with it? The problem is that the majority of plastic that we use is single use. Yeah, it's it's just used once and then it's discarded. And I mean, the UK's relatively high recycling rate, 45% of plastic is recycled in the UK. That's less than half, right? Mm -hmm. So that means that the plastic that is being used in food packaging is either being incinerated or, you know, it's going into landfill and then in certain instances it can be shipped off to non-OECD countries where it becomes both a a health hazard and obviously an environmental hazard. So it's just, yes, we have to bear these health and safety issues in mind. We have to find ways of giving information to consumers, but also at the same time, we need to design packaging the plastic waste out of the supply chain. So what do you use? The idea of top-up truck is that, so we buy things for a start in bulk, and then that's decanted in, into the containers which go on the truck, into so reusable containers. And then it's at the point of um, purchase, these are then going into the customer's own containers. So the product information and stuff like that is on the website and everything is kind of weighed out so people know how much they're buying of everything. But the whole idea is there isn't that kind of packaging waste element in the chain. It's it's getting passed from one container to another container and sort of refilled. The supply chain is therefore circular as opposed to linear because linear supply chains, given that things only go in, in one direction, there is the thing that, that houses the food or the product um, is then discarded and generates waste and pollution. What about the hygiene then? So you put your products in the customer's containers. So do you offer some guidance how clean the containers should be and what kind of containers they should bring so that you prevent any contamination? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of down to the customer to bring an appropriate sort of container, make sure it's clean. I wouldn't fill anything that's visibly dirty, but it's worth bearing in mind that in this business, we're handling very low risk products as well. Obviously, when stuff has, um, when you've got wet products, they're a lot more prone to um, like wet products with sort of low acidity, low sugar, low salt are obviously prone to kind of pathogen activity. 
these are dry products have a very long kind of shelf life anyway so the risk is quite low do you have paper bags Yes, because of the lockdown restrictions in the UK, we've actually had to pivot the model slightly. So all of the liquids that we sell are currently in um, own containers, but we're having to take pre-orders. So we are pre-packing our dry goods into brown paper bags. But, you know, once this period of time has ended and we're out of lockdown, looking to go back to all own containers or reusable containers. What are the products you carry? In terms of the kind of dry goods, there's pasta, there's oats, there's rice, there's lentils, a lot of dried fruit, nuts, seeds, sweets, sort of like um, raw chocolate raisins, cacao powder, herbs, spices, and then um, also oil, vinegar, and then bathroom products like cleaning products. Yeah, kind of bathroom products like shampoo, conditioner, hand wash. We've got about 100 products on there in total. And do you still have milk delivery in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. We had our milk delivered on a vehicle exactly like my milk float. And yeah, that was very much the norm. Are you still do that. I don't have that myself, but that still is a service that exists well around London and the UK. I don't know why. Kind of fell out of fashion a little bit in the sort of, I guess, early noughties. I guess people just found it easier and cheaper to pick up their milk at the supermarket along with everything else. So, but yeah, there are companies who are sort of bringing it back and can even get a sort of oat milk version of around East London as well. So uh, yeah, a bit of a return to the old ways. Most people like to go to the supermarket because they have so many choices how many say i pick a product oatmeal do you have two three four or just one choice just one choice i mean that's the thing i think people are overwhelmed with choice in in so many areas you know whether it's choosing something on netflix or or going to a supermarket um we have one of everything i mean obviously because we have to there's limited space but we just make sure that things that we do have is is of really high quality and we have to accept that we can't please everyone as well we, there's always somebody that says oh have you got um you know this very niche product <laughs> and given the space requirements we can't we can't do that so we just have to stick to the basics so how does it work tell me if i was a customer what are the options available for me so you would make your booking and then you would let us know what you want and then on the day you come with your containers and we will top them up so yeah people need to kind of the trucks only there for a short period of time so people need to kind of plan in advance what it is that they need so we can sort of serve them nice and quickly but yeah we will be literally serving the stuff on the street side so you don't do door to door delivery so you're there you have a route and specific spots you will be there no so it's it works on a private booking system so customer will more make a booking yeah i mean we we did trial a bit of of kind of rocking up um somewhere and seeing what happens but people aren't really in the mindset of doing their grocery shopping in their own containers if they've just come across you in the street so that doesn't work so well it's basically it's essentially a delivery service but just using own containers Okay so you will pull up in front of my home and I will go out with my containers. Yes. And you will fulfill my order. Yes. And alternatively, you know, because sometimes we deal with busy people. We have had a couple of instances of where somebody's saying they, they're self-isolating. In that case, they leave their containers on their doorstep and then we go and fill them up at the truck and, and pop them back on the doorstep and do a completely contactless delivery. Approximately how many miles do you drive in a week? Well, we're only operating on three days a week and we're probably doing about 10 miles a day. 
And how many stops would that be? There's a maximum number of slots of about eight slots. So um, sort of operating near capacity. So yeah, about kind of like seven or eight slots. So how can you scale up? Because you are going through a congested part of the city. You are driving Mm. in the city and your reach is only so many people because you can go only so fast and so far in a given day. How would you scale up? Yeah, we would get different, more milk floats and have different delivery points. I mean, obviously, as you've like rightly identified, the um, the range of the batteries on these old milk floats is quite limited. So you have to have different delivery points, different sort of bases where the floats are charged and stuff like that. Describe to the American audience, what is a milk float? So a milk float is an old electric vehicle. We've had electric vehicles in the UK for quite some time. Like now when you talk about electric vehicles, nowadays we've got lithium-ion batteries on electric vehicles. These are, on my milk float is something called lead-acid batteries, which are like very old-school technology. And uh, yeah, so it's basically would traditionally have, there would have been a whole fleet of them at the dairy and then, um, or the distribution point, and then the, the floats would then go around London before everyone gets up, obviously, because they they don't go very fast. So to avoid congestion, they would sort of go, do the rounds at three, four o'clock in the morning. And then by the time you get up, you would have your milk in a glass bottle with a foil cap delivered to your doorstep. So that's how I grew up in India. We used to get those milk bottles yeah. and delivered at 6 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. And uh, it was a struggle. Like, who would be the person to open the door for the milk person? Yeah. <laughs> so what range do these vehicles have now? Yeah, I mean, with a new set of lead acid batteries, you can do up to 70 miles. So mine have old batteries, so I can do 25 miles. But yeah, you can certainly modify the vehicles as well to put new batteries in. So you just come back and plug it in your um, EV charger? It's not really what you would describe as an EV charger, because that's normally what you would charge a kind of modern electric vehicle on. It's just... It's a very simple kind of commercial um, three-pronged sort of 32-amp socket, basically. Tell us what a typical day is for you with your top-up truck. But I must say, I'm so fascinated with the whole milk float concept. The closest we have here is the ice cream truck. The ice cream truck, I guess, just rocks up and puts the puts the jingle on, right? Yeah, the typical day will be we'll have we'll have the bookings for the day, and we'll go and um, yeah, and basically we'll go to those bookings, and there's about eight of them in a day, and we will meet people. There'll be neighbours who um, kind of congregate as with milk milk floats arriving. Mm-hmm. We'll find a, a group of neighbours sort of there, ready with their containers in the usual spot, and yeah, and then we kind of go. It's it's very intense. Like, like there's no denying it is an incredibly intense job driving them not because you drive and you have to manage all of the communications and you have to to, to then um, find somewhere to park there's lots of people looking it's quite a difficult vehicle to maneuver you get there and then there's people asking all sorts of questions and bearing in mind there's also people that are stopping you in the street going this is amazing what's this and you have to stay focused and you have to you know also tell people about allergens and stuff like that and then fill up the containers and then put it all through the tills and weigh everything and you really have to be hyper hyper focused and it's really not for the faint-hearted and it is incredibly exhausting yeah and before you do all of that we have to load everything onto them onto the float so there's a lot of manual labor heavy lifting do you do this all by yourself no i did in the beginning and now i've got people who help um and i'm doing a bit less of the driving but yeah sometimes kind of 
testing the waters a bit, but you usually need to have two people on the milk float just to manage because we don't let people, I mean, some zero waste shops, people kind of serve themselves because of the pandemic. Maybe this will change in the future, but because of the pandemic, we're doing all the serving ourselves. So yeah, you kind of, if you've got a queue of 10 people um, kind of down the street and it's a half hour window and they all want X, Y, Z, you have to work super fast, like in terms of filling everything up. So yeah, having two people to kind of get through everything um, is totally necessary. What about if it's raining? How do you manage? Which probably does very often in London, right? It is challenging. That There's no denying. It's not that fun when it's raining. <laughs> the truck is, with the modifications that we're doing, is going to be sort of more weatherproof. But um, at the moment, yeah, it doesn't have that. And you do, you have to improvise. You have to just make sure that the goods don't get wet. You have to make sure that the technology doesn't get wet and make sure that the customers don't get annoyed um, because they're in the rain. Make sure you don't get cold and ill. And, you know, it can be pretty hectic. But yeah, I think um, it's just about finding processes and, and <laughs> sort of adapting the, the truck so it's a bit easier. Coming back to the products. So you have all these in different containers on your truck. How do you prevent cross-contamination? People have allergies, dietary restrictions. How do you manage a customer who has those preferences? Unfortunately, you sort of have to make choices and set your priorities when doing an insane operation like this. And I wish we could be everything to everyone. But unfortunately, I've had to put a sort of a defensive allergen warning to kind of basically protect us and kind of say, because even though we do take measures to avoid cross-contamination, just because of the, the nature of the environment, things are kind of in close concept. There is mustard, there is gluten, there is sesame and what other allergen mustard gluten sesame and nuts obviously um all present so yeah we just have to make customers aware sort of different points along the purchasing funnel that those allergens are handled in the environment so you have a fair warning say we have cross-contamination so we can't guarantee mm -hmm that there is no cross-contamination. I mean, I think there are certain instances in which packaging is quite useful. And when people do have allergies, that's where it does really serve a purpose. And the nature of these shops does make it quite tricky because things aren't totally separate. It does make it a bit tricky for allergy sufferers. Where did you get the idea to have this sort of uh, distribution system? Yeah, so I mean, I've been working in food and sustainability for the last five years. I worked for London's biggest artisan bakery. And then I worked for a, a company called Rubies in the Rubble, who make condiments from surplus kind of outgraded wonky produce. Yeah, I was just having a lot of ideas. I mean, I've, I've always had a lot of wacky business ideas anyway. And I was having a lot of ideas around um, packaging waste and, and just waste reduction in general and closed loop systems. And a few ideas were sort of buzzing around my mind. And then as soon as the pandemic set in and I was put on furlough leave because my job was kind of selling into restaurants, hotels, cafes, which all shut. So I was on furlough leave and my first day of furlough leave started volunteering for an amazing organization called Made in Hackney, who run community kitchens. And they pivoted to, because they couldn't do these sort of like community cooking classes, they pivoted to running an emergency meal program to feed all of the sort of vulnerable people who were shielding in the area who couldn't kind of access the normal soup kitchens and stuff like that. So I was volunteering for them as a, a delivery cyclist kind of going around on my bike with all the, these meals. And 
I just loved it. I mean, it was such a privilege in the time where everyone's in lockdown to be a key worker and to be kind of outside when it was like you can only exercise once a day. It was, it was a nice reason to kind of get some loads of exercise, um, see people do something really good. It was a really, really wonderful experience. And those thoughts around packaging waste and then one of the things I just love so much about about this volunteering was was feeling more deeply embedded in my local community. And I'd previously always worked outside of Hackney and ha- had to commute and commuting was prior to the pandemic was was a big part of my life. And it was, you know, I, I was so used to losing an hour at the end of each day. Yeah, to just not spending any time in this amazing area that I live in. How big a borough is Hackney? Yeah, so Hackney has a population of 300,000 people. Pretty small. Yeah, it was this kind of, from this need to feel more closely connected to my local area, to my local community, selfishly to to not have to commute. And also, um, yeah, mainly around just making it easier for people to go plastic free because I myself admittedly didn't lead a plastic free lifestyle or a zero waste lifestyle before starting this business. There were certain things that I would refill um, that were easy, like my bathroom was pretty plastic free for the last few years, refill everything there. I just wouldn't, in my busy schedule of commuting and um, you know spending all of my waking hours during the week going to and from London in an office, just wouldn't have time to go to the zero waste shop. Mm-hmm even though I'm somebody who was working in sustainability, cared about sustainability. And so I kind of thought there must be a much easier way of doing this. And, and intuitively, it just it made sense to, yeah, to kind of do it as a delivery service. That way, you're not having to lug your containers all the way to your zero waste shop. And, and in Hackney, bearing in mind, we're quite lucky. There are three, at least four, possibly more, zero waste shops. People were conditioned to that lifestyle because in the US, there are very, very few zero waste stores. Mm -hmm. So they had the mindset, they had an understanding. Yeah. I mean, it it certainly meant that there was already like an audience. You didn't have to teach everyone about it. But the whole idea of this is not to kind of, I guess, take business away from the other amazing zero waste businesses in the area, rather to take this to new audiences, which aren't your like super early adopter, like total eco warrior type. They're more people who are like, you know, I know plastic's bad, but I'm not really going to do anything about it unless it's made ultra convenient. That's the audience is those people because people who who lead a completely zero waste lifestyle they you know they're usually more than happy to go on their bike to the local fixed location shop whereas the thing about this what's so great is some of those people are the ones that book the truck still in booking the truck it's not just them that they're kind of having an impact on their own lifestyle they're then inviting their neighbors to the booking, right? So then if the whole shopping process becomes a community event because they've then invited their neighbors and throughout the pandemic, there's been a, a real rise in the number of like WhatsApp groups. And I don't know if it's the same over in the US, but a rise in the number of WhatsApp groups and the number of Facebook groups and the number of kind of like Instagram things for local neighbors. And I, I don't know if that's kind of sprung through the sort of mutual aid movement the top up truck actually gives those groups something in person to do rather than just talk about, Oh, have you, those foxes were loud last night or like the bit, you know, there's something complain about the, the bin collections or, or whatever. It actually means that neighbors can have an, an excuse to, to sort of meet safely, respecting social distancing outside and do their shopping. So, and there's a lot of people who have never even heard of the concept before or kind of checking it out. And then they slowly bit by bit, it might take a few visits, but they 
they've kind of got into the groove and they've kind of started saving their mayonnaise jars or their bottles, wait until they're, they're run down and then kind of get excitedly refilling them. Mm-hmm. The whole idea, rather necessarily than it, it's like everyone's primed and, and ready for it, it, it's really trying to push it out into people who weren't doing it before. So how did you assure them that your products were clean and the quality of a packaged one? How did you let them know that? I mean, in all honesty, it's not been an issue. Like, I don't think um, maybe that's to do with here. I don't really think I get people asking me, are these products clean? Or how can I be assured of the quality? Or No one has ever asked me that. I mean, because the, the products that we sell are really good and are, are sustainably sourced. They're mostly organic. They are, where possible, locally sourced. You know, everything is really good quality, but there's almost so much that we've got to, to communicate already that, that that sometimes even gets missed off a little bit. But people, by and large, are trusting and they're nice and, and they engage with it on a, not, a lot more positive level than sort of asking us kind of questions like that. So for every business, the first sale is very exciting. Yeah. What was your first sale? Do you remember the person and when it was? I remember the person. I can't remember exactly what he bought. I think it was either nuts or fruit or something that he could just grab on the fly. I can't remember what we packed it into either, but um, I think we had an old jar or something. And uh, yeah, he just rocked up and was like, this is absolutely amazing. What's going on here? And it was it was very exciting. Seems like ages ago, but not that long ago. When did you start the business? In August. Okay, so you're about six months old. Yeah, but seven months, yeah. How can customers find the top-up truck? Can I say I see you in my neighborhood? Can I just walk up and say, hey, I'm out of oats today. May I have some? So when we first launched, we were sort of taking passing trade. Obviously, people would book us, right? Because of lockdown restrictions in the UK, we've had to move to a pre-order only system. And that has a number of advantages and a number of disadvantages because obviously we can't we can't then serve people on the fly. And so it means we've had fewer customers and stuff like that. But yeah, it's kind of helped people, people get in the groove. Um, and yeah, and we, we're wondering if we're going to carry on doing that in the future. So how do you optimize your routes? They have to book for certain days. So each area that we go to mm-hmm. has a different kind of time slot and then people can just book within that time slot. Oh, okay. So you say, I'm going to be on this route and they can say, okay, this slot works for me on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Then they booking a slot and you driving up and down. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much. I mean, the route is actually very short because, you know, we've actually been very restrictive as to when people can book. So it may be that we're kind of going back and forth a little bit, but but um, it's only, a, it's only so say... Um, Friday morning is for the, roughly speaking, the kind of like E9 postcode. And then Friday afternoon is roughly speaking for the E5 postcode. And so we're not kind of leaving a zip code, um, as you call it, Mm -hmm. in the course of an afternoon. So it, it all stays relatively compact. And it works a bit like a kind of restaurant booking system within the allocated day for the postcode. People just book one of the slots that are available. There's so much variation in what people want, especially with the pandemic, right? And Sometimes people are overwhelmed with something and nobody has a routine. How do you estimate how much of what to buy and how to buy and to be able to optimize revenues, especially as a fresh business, you know, which has started in the pandemic? I can't imagine it could have been easy. And after the pandemic too, right? How would you estimate what you buy? 
How do you forecast? We just forecast based on previous sales and, and it does fall into a bit of a pattern, really. Sometimes we get it wrong, but most of the time it's pretty straightforward. Able to sort of match the demand with the supply. More or less. I mean, occasionally you just get somebody ordering a huge amounts of stuff. Other than that, like over time, you just, you can pretty much roughly, bearing in mind, it's not, we, we don't just have the, I'm partnered with a shop. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit more space outside of what's on the float to be able to have hold a bit of stock as well. So um, mm-hmm. we don't we forecast this, order the stock um, and we get it in and, and very rarely do we we have stock issues. Would you like to talk about the partnership with the shop? Yes. So I launched in partnership with a store called Restore, which is kind of based in Hackney as well. And I, I knew Megan, who owns Restore from previously, because um, I um used to supply Megan with when I worked for Rubies in the Rubble with with some of their products. So yeah, it was it, it kind of came about because I'd sort of had this idea in lockdown and and I approached Megan and I was like, "Hey, um, you know, this is kind of what I plan to do. Obviously just letting you know because it's kind of in in the same area as you and it's the same similar concept and maybe we can collaborate in the future." And she said, that's so crazy. I was literally just thinking about a milk float this week. That's insane. Let's have a meeting. And and it just made a lot more sense to kind of partner up. And we, we had to, although I knew her from before and, and we'd had a um, some form of working relationship before as well, obviously we, we needed to make sure that we were kind of aligned in terms of vision, in terms of values, in terms of like, and when I say values, in terms of like pricing, in terms of sourcing, in terms of um, sort of like, yeah, just in terms of how we run the business. And yeah, and so we kind of realized we, we were pretty well aligned. And it's quite nice to do stuff in, in partnership as opposed to in competition and, and be supportive and share knowledge and kind of help each other out. Top Up Truck is having a crowdfunding to raise money. Tell us about it. Currently, so I launched a crowdfunder at the start of this month. It was actually meant to be a five-week campaign. It's a little crowdfunder, just a rewards-based crowdfunder on, on a platform called Crowdfunder UK. What is the reward-based crowdfunding? So it's rather than equity, it's we're offering rewards in exchange for donations and we launched this back in yeah the start of this month and it was it's a five week campaign but we actually hit the initial target of 7000 pounds in 3 days which was amazing and now we are and then we hit the stretch target of 10000 pounds shortly after that and we we're, we're now currently going trying to um raise 15000 by the end of the month in exchange for donations, people can get all sorts of wacky and wonderful rewards, um, such as um, they can be mayor of the milk float. So go around on the milk float announcing the, ri- the arrival of the milk float with a bell, or they can have a trippy um, psychedelic risograph um, print of the milk float, or they can, um, we've got a personalized upcycling service for um, creating produce bags. Um, from people's old garments. Wine tasting has been very popular for obvious reasons. Yeah, just try to keep all of the rewards sort of with this, within the ethos of, of what we're doing, um, but also bring a lot of like craziness and, and, and personality and outside the box thinking to it just to make it a little bit more fun and, and kind of show what we're about. So what will you be using the money for? So 7,000 of it is going to go into upgrading the milk float into a lockable entity. So 
kind of launched this business as a minimum viable product, kind of wanted to see if it works as a concept, no expectation. And so didn't want to kind of invest in in sort of modifying something in, in a way if, if it wasn't going to have a future, but knowing that the vehicle itself could be repurposed for something else. So it's now that we know it works, going to invest in um, building the truck to the sort of kind of original vision of, of this, which is mm-hmm. something that's lockable and looks really beautiful and is functional and has um, inbuilt kind of gravity dispensers and, and lots of storage. So it looks like a sort of a real zero waste shop on wheels, if you like. So did you design it? Yeah. So we worked with um, with a really interesting guy who um, it's actually his girlfriend got in touch via Instagram, wonders of modern technology. Um, she just got in touch randomly via Instagram and kind of said, this is what my partner does. Yeah. He's just a really, really interesting dude who um, is based really locally, a real kind of creative pop problem solver. And he kind of specializes in using renewable materials and like full sort of traceability on the plywood and everything that he's going to be building it from. So yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be built not only to kind of fulfill its purpose, but also, yeah, look really nice and be, be made from sustainable materials. So one thing the pandemic has brought us is closer to our communities. Like you said, there are so many more social uh, media groups focused on the community. What has the reaction been in your community in Hackney to your truck? It's been amazing, really. I mean, people stop us in the street all the time and say, this is brilliant. This is such a needed service. And it's been really wonderful. It had um, also spoke to a woman recently on the phone who had mobility issues, who, who was so delighted that we could go to her. And so she could, you know, not have to compromise on her values because of her mobility issues. But generally, you know, even people who aren't actually using our service or, or kind of who aren't actually shopping with us, the milk float, it just really evokes a sense of nostalgia and we kind of get these old sort of old boys uh, like east end guys kind of coming up to us like oh my god like i've not seen one of these in years this is amazing brilliant girls love it like i used to drive one of these back in the day and there's this real kind of like it just brings about a lot of community spirit and people stop and kids wave and the branding's quite funky it's got pink on it it's got bright green on it it's got a little truck logo on it and kids even who have obviously never heard of a milk float because they're three or whatever they're just like what's that you know it it gets a a really like warm reaction just going around a lot of people have said this is the most exciting thing that happens in our week because there's nothing going on so so it's just like it's really brings a bit of excitement and something to look forward to which is really lovely thank you ella for coming on mindful businesses this has been fun talking to you over a cup of tea and uh, wishing you all the best. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it's been really awesome talking to you. So thanks a lot. You're listening to Mindful Businesses with Vidya Ayer. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe and listen to us on your favorite podcast listening app. Remember to rate and review us. To learn more about this and our other episodes, check out our website, mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two on this episode, share it with one friend. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.